You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Hi, welcome to 3 o'clock. Um, before this panel begins, I want to give you a few announcements. Um, one about parking. Um, it's now a work week for our friends at the Ski Corp. And so we're going to ask you, those of you with vehicles, to remember to park beyond the defunct fountain. Do not park along the fire road. I mean, not, don't park along the road here um, because the firemen need access. Do not park by the grassy embankment because our colleagues in the ski court need to park there for their employees. So please be aware of that. You'll also notice, those of you who smoke, we have new um, no smoking signs up around the areas that have windows into their workplaces. And so I'd like the smokers to be aware of where you're smoking if anyone is um, working nearby um, and they don't want to smoke along with you. Okay. A um, couple more things. Sands Hall Open Workshop is where at 4 o'clock? Those of you who have heard me say this, right out there. Thank you. So pass the word. Don't go over to the plaza bar. Just stay here and walk outside. Um, the screenwriters want your, your questions tonight um, for their panel so you think you have a story. Um, any questions for the screenwriters? Um, put them in the little black bag by the door. And... Um, I think that's it. That's it. It's enough. And yes, there is a bird. Um, we do what we can when they fly in. There is always a bird every summer. Um, sometimes we are successful. Sometimes the birds are unsuccessful. Just so you know, we have that you know, on our list of things to do. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Welcome, everyone, to the uh, panel which, whose subject cannot be, ever be fully described. Words fail us when we talk about voice. What is it? When we talk about music, uh, we know it's sound produced in a characteristic way by a specific singer or instrument or instrumental section of an orchestra, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and in, in, in literary usage, it usually refers to tone or style. Um, but I think that there are probably a lot of uh, definitions and suggestions that are going to fall between those two definitions um, as the next hour goes by. Uh, it seems to me that the worst thing a writer can do is to worry about his or her own voice. Um, you know, when we talk in workshops or in conferences, uh, there's always the apocalyptic question, as I call it, that comes up, which is, am I any good? And then the secondary apocalyptic question is, do I have a voice? And uh, I, I think you have to recognize that you can't talk about that. I mean, voice is the whole way, now I'm defining it, we'll just end the panel. Voice is the whole way you sound in the reader's ear as, as the reader works his or her way through your stories or novels or essays. Um, how do you get one? Um, 
Remember in the Bourgeois Gentilhomme, the main character discovers after trying to learn how to write prose and speak prose that he's been speaking prose all along. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's the end of the rainbow. And if you chase it, it's kind of a mad pursuit. Uh, but we're going to ask our uh, multi-voiced writers here this afternoon, Dorothy Allison, Rhoda Huffey, Jane Vandenberg, Jerry Haslam, and um, Al Young, who will be here momentarily, to uh, speak to this question, and then we'll take your questions. And um, if you leave here thinking that you know what voice is, please, as Al Franken used to say, put my name on a $5 bill and drop it into an envelope. <laughs> Dorothy, what, do you want to speak to this question? I love a moderator who doesn't ask a question. All right. Um, everybody has voice. Everybody. The problem is most people have voices you don't want to stay in the room with. The good thing about growing up in the South is that you fall among people, all of whom believe they know how to tell stories. But it is always the same design of storytelling, and that design is they will start with something. Let me tell you about when my Uncle Jack rolled his truck. He drove a 74 Ford. Have you ever had a Ford? And then they start talking to you about Fords. And then the next thing you know, I bought a Ford in Galveston. You've been to Galveston? And the next thing you know, you're bored out of your mind. The story has no point. It's not going anywhere. If, in fact, they occasionally cuss and make a joke, you'll still stay in the room. Voice, narrative voice that works for me is a voice that catches you that you can't leave the room for. Um, one of the exercises that I use working especially with high school students, teenagers. I love to teach teenagers. There's always hope. Send, I send teenagers to the mall, and I say, walk out, just walk through the mall and eavesdrop. You're a writer. You have a license. Walk through the mall and eavesdrop, and if you pass a group and they are telling, someone is telling a story and you have to sit down and you have to keep wiggling closer and trying to hear better, that's voice. Somebody is talking that you cannot walk away from. That's when it works. That's the most powerful, engaging performance. And please, don't tell 80 different stories in six minutes. I don't want to know about your cousin in Galveston. Unless I have the compelling voice that yeah. can, can do it. Rhoda, speak to this point. And by the, those of you who have 87 phone calls going off right now, could you please turn your phones to off? Thanks. I think it's on. Yeah, I think it's on. Um, yeah, I felt kind of flummoxed when I, when I thought about narrative voice because I really believe it exists. And there are voices that I love to follow, but... Um, you know, I find when I'm writing that I really try not to think about it. And uh, if I start thinking about it, I start getting really cute and manipulative. And, um, you know, when you follow a voice you love in, in fiction, it's because it's completely genuine in some way. And uh, so when I find myself thinking about it, I, I try to, <laughs> like, I'm not thinking about you. I think about plot. I think about character. I think a lot about a lot of things. But... Um, I think it's really just finding a genuine, 
place in yourself. You know, it's like when you're talking to people you're very comfortable with and um, you're completely yourself. It's like trying to, f to find a personality. You know, you, you find your personality and you know when you're being yourself. And um, voice is a lot like that. I remember uh, Jane Ann Phillips years ago on a panel saying that she had a big sign up over her desk that said, don't think. And um, that doesn't work for me for a lot of things, but, but it really works for voice. And having said that, um, I must say that uh, in, when I write, I tend to steal my mother's voice because she had a terrific, you know, it's a way of being in the world. It's a way that you perceive things. And she was so damn funny and unconscious, and, and I kind of lift from her. So I'm not sure that it has to come out of yourself either. Jane? Yeah. Um, is this good? Yeah. Uh, I care about voice probably more than almost anything. And I um, will write an enormous amount of stuff. And I also encourage my students to write an enormous amount of stuff. And it doesn't have to be good in any kind of way. Because um, I believe that the stories themselves have a sort of uh, an imperative that is going to come up. It has nothing to do with thinking. I think it does not have to do with character development or plot or anything else. What it is is the, the voice of this narrator that we happen upon who is not me and it isn't you. It's the story's voice. And when you hear it, and that's our job as writers, is to simply listen really t attentively to what our stories have to say. And when we, when we hear it, all of a sudden, we can relax and think, ah, oh, thank God I don't have to do this. Somebody way better at storytelling is going to tell this story for me. And uh, we know when we're in the hands of that, that narrator. It's n nothing is more important. I love the sound of the American voice. I think that we're all working. I'm assuming that everybody here is either an American or is at least somewhat fluent in the American language. I think that what we have been given as a tool because of our accident of history of having this unbelievably lush, rich thing happening we have the most magnificent tool for storytelling that has ever been. Probably we're only, that we were rivaled a little bit by the Russians, but we clobbered them. And that's because we suck up out of every language, out of everything, out of youth. We sponge it upward. We get it from technology. We get it from TV. We get it from hip hop, from the King James Bible. And we all have it, and all we have to do is listen until we hear this thing take over our story, and um, then we're free. Thank you, Jane. Jerry? Well, I'd like to first of all agree that the, the two key ingredients that I heard discussed so far are eavesdrop and listen. Um, my Angela once told me a story, my wife and I actually, a story about how she was in a restaurant in New York with an agent's assistant because the agent was ill having lunch with James Baldwin and she said that uh, the agent's assistant was not used to two martini lunches and by the second martini she had taken over the conversation and was telling a story about skunks under her mother's porch in North Carolina 
And Baldwin leaped to his feet and said, stop. And the little, uh, in very small woman, way she was described by Maya, said she, the woman's face just looked stricken. My God, she'd alienated the top writer in the stable. And Baldwin said, it's only fair to warn you, madam, you're in the company of thieves. <laughs> I think that as a, as a writer, just listen, listen, listen. Uh, make sure you have your Palm Pilot with you at all times. And I've got scores of those at home going back 30 years. And because I can't make things up any better more, that are more lyric, that are more interesting than what I hear, although I, I will frequently take several voices and combine them to create a new voice. Um, before long, your characters give you the voices. They just come with their own voices, but they're drawn out of what Jane was talking about, this remarkable um, melange we call English, which is one of the most, uh, what would the word be? It, it is the most eclectic, I think, probably language on earth. It borrows from every source. And uh, I also remember something I learned in a linguistics course. I had to go to college to, to get a degree so I could support my writing habit. I was not a creative writing major, but I, so I took a, was taking linguistics so I could be a teacher. And the professor said one thing that really struck me and helped me as a writer. He said, everyone speaks a dialect. There's no one speaking English. Everyone speaks a dialect. English is what we call all the mutually understandable dialects. And that helped me tremendously. Because in, in, in many cases, the voice, the dialect, the idiolect is a term they use in linguistics, that particular way of speaking brings with it content, brings with it a response from the reader. It will help the reader create an image in his or her own mind that will aid in the plot that you're about to foist upon them. So I, listen, listen, listen. That's, that's a, a lot of interesting stuff you've thrown out here for us. It reminds me, just to start out here, growing up in New Jersey, you know, we had to learn English as a second language, uh, listening to the BBC during the war and such. Um, and so we had to pay close attention to English because we spoke a very strange version of it. Um, and I wake up in the morning, I say to myself sometimes, thank God I'm not a southern writer. Because the, burden, the burden of all that palaver going back to the early planters and, the, and, and slaves uh, speech, I mean, that, that's something that's very heavy to carry around with you every day. I mean, I know some southern, I know some southern born writers who try to get rid of that heritage and they just can't. They don't hate the south, they don't, they don't hate it. Uh, each one of you grew up speaking a certain kind of English, as, as Jerry pointed out. Uh, do you feel that you're working with or against that uh, original speech that you learned in, in your own prose, in your art prose. Jane, do you, you want to speak to that? Um, yeah, I, I feel like um, I, I grew up right on the ocean, in the Pacific Ocean, and I ha was, the idiom that I was given was um, girl, Southern California, white girl, um, blonde, I, cute, and I thought that Very what cute. this meant <laughs> was that I was an idiot. I mean, honestly, everything about society that society has to say about this 
model um, or the, whatever, the, the Gidget or whatever, um, surfer, <laughs> is not, is, you know, is pejorative. And so I thought that um, I could never possibly say anything intelligent in my own idiom. And so I think that what it co caused me to do was to write. I, I started out writing, I tried to write like a writer instead of writing like a talker. And I actually was, I felt mute. My mother was a, a wonderful storyteller. My family was full of great drunks who told the most amazing stories. But I wasn't one of them. I was, the quiet, I was eating potato chips and sitting under the kitchen table and waiting for the world to end. And um, so I listened to them talking. I internalized a lot of it. I feel like I get absolutely everything. I have three foreign languages that I dabble in. I have another one, um, the language of psychosis, with which I'm quite well-versed drunks. I, I get it all. I feel like it all belongs to me. And um, the fact that it comes, I used to be, I think, didn't I used to have a little bit breathier voice when I was young? I think I talked a little bit higher. Yes, but I, you're still as cute, Jane. <laughs> Thank you. But the, um, and, and I think that, um, so if I can speak as a, a surfer and say something really smart, anybody can do anything, right? Right, Al? <laughs> and now Al will speak to us without benefit of having heard our opening remarks on the subject of voice. Al is speaking in the voice of someone who was awakened by a phone call a few moments ago. In the spirit lunch, of full disclosure, I because lunch, I, I left the house without shoes. waking him up. I had lunch with Alan and his wife, and, and I, he said, I have, I have to go off to a panel. And I said, oh, what's the panel on? He said, voice. I said, well, I'm going home. And I did go home. But with voice up, perhaps like the rest of us, I can come early and stay late. Most of you are unfamiliar with my fiction because uh, the handful of novels that I've written have been out of print for some time. Uh, I've been working on one interminably that's coming to conclusion. But a voice is something that I've taken an interest in from early childhood because I was surrounded by uh, nothing but voices. That was the original literature I was exposed to in the 1940s and 1950s, uh, starting in Mississippi and continuing on to Detroit. Because people in those days did tell stories uh, to one another, was the basic form of entertainment, which is where I get my basic concepts of voice from. Uh, literature came second. But um, when you're surrounded by living uh, mimics and storytellers, you automatically uh, imbibe a sense of voice because people would actually rise from their chairs and walk like the person, the character that they were describing and imitate his or her inflections continuously. And I'm, I know I'm not the only one who went through that kind of thing. I know that Dorothy is from the South and, and she can probably come early and stay late on the subject as well. So voice has always been something that's been paramount to me in writing. Uh, if you're familiar with the Al Young who's a poet, which I think more people are familiar with now than Al Young, the storyteller, uh, narrator, fiction writer, uh, you'll notice that there are lots of voices in my poems. It confuses people because uh, they 
are attuned largely to the predominant confessional mode of our time, uh, they presume that when you use the first pronoun I uh, in something that you write, that it pertains to the author. And I play with that. I, I, I will uh, write an I poem occasionally. I, I write very few of them. But when I write them, uh, I'll uh, quite often load them with fictitious information, knowing that people have no filter, because largely the idea of the Dickensian type of writer, you know, the writer who presumes to occupy uh, all kinds of characters, little children, old people, evil people, virtuous people, and so forth, uh, that has disappeared from literature in our time. Uh, it's a literature largely of the monologue, and the monologue is largely confessional. And I think it's a great tragedy that has befallen us that this development has gotten so out of hand. When I get an opportunity to teach uh, writers, I give them exercises in voice. Uh, write in the voice of an ancestor, whether you know or don't know this ancestor. Uh, write in the voice of someone from another culture uh, whose language you're unfamiliar with, but whose situation you might have seen depicted in some tragedy on CNN or Fox. And uh, what would this child say who uh, started to come of age at a time when uh, their village was bombed uh, repeatedly and most of the, of the people in the village were killed or something like that. Or right in the voice of uh, someone uh, whom you've never met but have read of in your own country uh, who lives in Appalachia, for example, uh, in the deprived part of Appalachia and think about what happens when something like the tragedy that uh, occurred in Tennessee uh, last year with the oil spills. Uh, these are things that I assign by way of exercise just to get people to stretch, to get out of that monotonous concept uh, of what you think of as being yourself, which is a fiction anyway. And I think that you can do yourself no greater service than to study uh, voice, how different writers approach it, how different novels are told in, in uh, varying voices. And you can learn everything there is to know uh, about storytelling by dabbling with voice. Thank you, Al. I, I'm convinced I'm going to tear up my next memoir. Uh, <laughs> Dorothy, what, what, I don't mean to bait you on the subject of southernness. Well, I do. Already I'm, tried. Yeah. Go ahead. So, do you feel it's a help or a hindrance to have grown up in the language of your people? Well, I don't think it's either one. You have your language is your language, but the problem is, we're writers. We put voice on the page, and the way you put the voice on the page, it comes into the context of what your readers have already read. And if they have a notion of what a Southern voice is, then you're actually writing in that context and you're often having to write counter because a lot of what, um, a lot of what is assumed to be Southern novels, at least when I first started publishing, um, were, how can I put this and be kind? Um, Dorothy, don't be kind, just be Well, they were stupid. Or they sounded stupid. And the way the words were put on the page, the way, in fact, dialect and vernacular was rendered on the page had a kind of contemptuous construction in which it looked as if anyone who spoke with a southern accent, accent sorry, was stupid. And you had, if you were going to write about people that you 
we're going to identify as Southern or working class or black or particularly Appalachian regional, you had to write against all of that prejudice that your characters were not deep, complex, heartbroken, interesting people. And to find a way to put that language on the page that isn't um, condescending or echo Br'er Rabbit and all that bullshit, um, or comic, which was the other assumption, is that Southerners all write comic. And I can be comic as hell, um, but my ambition is to break your heart. And I only am comic in order to soften you up before I rip you in pieces, <laughs> which is the essence of my construction of Southern voice. But I'm working against people who have only read, you know, why I live at the PO and have heard a whole lot of books on tape and have not actually seen much on the page. I found that I had to make rules about things I would never use. So I very carefully did not drop syllables. I very carefully did not use any of the traditional ways of representing Southern working class speech. I did use constructions like repetitions of words and ain't and putting blocking words together, ice tea and all that stuff. But mostly what I had to do was invent rhythm on the page and construct sentences that were parsed so that the reader would read it differently than they were used to reading Southern. And that's well, how you put it on the page. It's very different from what I can do with my voice. I mean, I could go do voiceover for candy and make a living, but no, I want to put it on the page and I want it to feel real. That's more complicated. Rhoda? Uh, yeah, this idea of uh, English as a language of many languages is interesting to me. And you know, you can usually, if, if you run into people who come from the same family, you can recognize it. They have a familial way of talking. And uh, when I got out of college, or when I was in college, I wanted to be a linguist. I, I had studied some French, I was taking Greek, and I loved languages. And I wanted to be um, a translator until I realized that what really interested me was um, you know, idiomatic expressions and all the weird ways people spoke English and how much personality that uh, revealed. And that just learning to say the same things over and over wasn't very interesting to me. Uh, and I remember one time talking to a guy who sounded, I didn't know him, and he sounded so familiar, and he reminded me of a Buddhist teacher I'd met named Ken McLeod. So I, you know, out of the blue, I said, hey, have you ever met somebody named Ken McLeod? And he said, no, but I know the name because I had a teacher who was important to me, and his teacher was Ken McLeod. And, you know, something, I don't know what, had come down through two people. It's kind of interesting. Um, I grew up in a home, you know, my dad was a preacher, and so we had family worship every morning, and, you know, they, they quoted the Bible, King James, a lot. Uh, my father later had income rental property, and, you know, he would give people contracts. Usually it's a one-page contract, but his contract was five pages, and would say things like, therefore, um, uh, thereunto, you know, be... <laughs> I can't, you know, every word was five syllables, and people would go, what the hell is this? <laughs> Therefore, I say unto ye, <laughs> do not park your motorcycle in the driveway. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was really, really weird. Uh, but that was his idea of a formal document, you know. Uh, the other good thing, though, that we had in our house, uh, oh, and I think the one thing is, when I write, I cannot contract my words. I always write do not for don't. 
Um, when Joy Johannesson uh, was my editor, she, you know, she just saying, "What is this?" But I think I just can't do it. Written language is always, you know, two words to me. Uh, the other one good thing in my house is we always had the devil around, um, you know, looking in the window or waiting for you down at the grocery store. And um, there's something about. Was was he cute? Was he what cute? Yeah. No, he was a dark shape. Oh. He was a little seductive, but ah. um, not personally. Just the things he recommended were seductive. <laughs> uh, but there's something about that kind of tension that brings out voice. Uh, someone pointed out to me once that Paradise Lost is so much more interesting than Paradise Regained, and the voice is so much stronger. And the most boring thing well, I... Most people remember uh, of Dante, uh, the Inferno. Yeah. They never talk about yeah, it's just kind of bland. Yeah. Yeah, Blake, Blake's famous comment that Milton didn't know it, but he was of the devil's party. He was of yeah. the devil. We're all of the devil. <laughs> you know? The most boring piece of writing I ever read, someone handed me a book called, um, hope I don't offend anybody, Conversations with God that was supposed to have been written by God. It's a fairly recent. It was the blandest. I mean, there was nothing because this guy was supposed to be, you know, with even the God in the Old Testament has got some bad, you know, character defects, but um, <laughs> this was really boring. So I think you need that um, dark side to have a voice. I wanted to say uh, that, you know, we're making, I think there's a huge distinction when we talk about the American language and they call it, what is that dictionary? Jack, it's the Dictionary of the American Language, right? And what we, what we have is the American language. And we, when we call it English, which I don't, I don't, because when we call it English, it's what they talk, they speak. And they speak English over there, and we have a different dialect. And if we can remember that we came over here and that we actually declared our independence of them, that it, it helps enormously because if we go to these derogated speech groups, like say the Southerners, the greatest storytellers in the whole wide world, who felt, well, isn't it true? It, they, who have felt like they, the world looks at them and thinks that they all talk like Thelma and Louise, a movie I had to walk out of, by the way, because I knew that no two women spoke. They were just talking like this. They were just dropping. You know, that wasn't a dialect. And if you go any place in the South where people have been there for a little while, what they're doing is they're talking a very precise dialect. And if we can get to that place in our own, in our own writing, where we're speaking a very precise dialect, we, we get it out of t narrative time, where it intersects narrative space in, out of our natal languages, then out into that little society that becomes, you know, whatever it is, the public school, the private school, wherever we learn, and we infuse it with profanity, and man, we, we swear so beautifully in this language. I think it's really like, it's like a musical instrument, the way the American swears, and, and I love it. And I counts, too, you know, you know how we say the alphabet in Jersey? Fucking A, fucking B, fucking C. <laughs> That's a very old joke, Jane. Yeah, so what's, what the proscribed language, those things that we cannot say, the, the stuff that isn't, you know, it used to be that you couldn't, 
it was all God's wounds or gadzooks, you know, because God's wounds. You couldn't say that because you could curse. You couldn't say, damn you to hell, because it would really happen. You know, people would really go to hell. Now it has everything to do with one's, excuse the expression, genitals and, you know, fucking. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's changed from the, the concept of, of, of God and, and, quote, holiness to um, the human body is where we find all, the, all our uh, profanity, which um, just completely delights me because language, of course, comes exactly out of the human body. And when we're working right, as writers, what happens is the, my voice hits your ear. And you know, we somehow do that. We get it onto the page where it comes in your ear from my human body. Well, the voice, the gods originally gave the voice to the Homeric poets. They breathed the poems into the Homeric poets. But we don't know whether they breathed it into their ears or whether they did mouth, the goddess did mouth to mouth. But into their hoo-hoo, she said. Al, can you Yeah, I've had a bring this I've had a lifelong fascination. A bit. I've had a lifelong fascination with uh, how technology uh, intersects in all of this. Melville, for example, speaks of the North American languages, plural. Uh, an exercise that I give my students is in listening. Take your recording device and actually tape a conversation and uh, compress it transcribe it and bring it into class and let's pass it around and listen to how people actually speak. Uh, I find that my students who write fiction have a very hard time with dialogue. Uh, it is Fran Lebowitz who says that the, re the reason she thinks her students have a hard time with dialogue is that they think the opposite of talking is waiting. Okay, so she, she might be right on that. <laughs> Uh, rather than listening, so that when they actually listen right. to conversations and they listen to all of the needless repetitions and they listen to all of the um, non-verbalizable usages, how do you write down, so I'm like, I'm like, you know, you'd have to be there to, to see this visually to be able to, to translate that. And what they find out usually from these exercises is that uh, they have ten ears, they don't really listen to uh, other people. When they uh, transcribe these things, they, they hear how many times people say the same thing over and over again, how many non sequiturs uh, they use, and how quite often people are uh, speaking two different languages um, in terms of what their interests are or where they uh, mine their, uh, the sources from, from which they mine their uh, expressions. And uh, they learn something as, as uh, wannabe writers of fiction that uh, you can create a lot of dramatic tension just by having people talk to each other who aren't really hearing uh, what, uh, what they're saying. And it's, it's a venerable old um, fiction writer's uh, tool. So voice is everything. But when uh, you look at, say, African-American slang, I've never personally heard anybody say, you jive turkey. But <laughs> you know that was created by, by uh, 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 television writers in Los Angeles and New York in the 1970s and the 1980s. Uh, so that our very slang is not uh, produced in the same way that it would have been a hundred years ago. Uh, a lot of it is generated by uh, the corporate culture. And uh, my ears are, are perked up to this. Uh, I, I pay attention to it, just how uh, kids talk when they think they're being uh, funky and non-beat. And it's not the same way they would have spoken uh, in my uh, youth. 
Let me uh, weigh in just for a bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. As writers, I think all of us recognize that whatever the regional dialect we employ for a character, it has various levels of formality, various levels of usage. And you can often take one character uh, and, and reveal a good deal about their mood by just changing the level of usage of their speech. Uh, having them move from a relatively formal uh, di dialectic level where they're using very few contractions, no cursing, that kind of thing, to, to one where they're really getting down and, and getting after one another and they're using uh, language that assumes a lot of familiarity with one another's styles of speech. And we all know this, we do this in our talk with one another, so there's no reason our characters shouldn't do this. Um, one of the things that I, I, I was lucky enough to have been raised in the rural part of the southern part of the San Joaquin Valley. And when we'd visit kinfolk in Texas, I thought I was still in Oildale. When we'd go to San Francisco, I thought we'd gone to Europe. Uh, it was a very interesting place to grow up, but uh, one of the things that I've tried to do in my writing about folks down there is to take, play against stereotypes. Take someone who has a heavy, what we in California call oaky drawl, and make them the smart character, because that's what I run into. I've been fleeced more by oaky businessmen than all other kinds combined, <laughs> so I can say that with authority. Uh, and then uh, just uh, uh, know in advance, try to know in advance how your readers will respond to the voices you're using. Uh, it, it changes, obviously, as Al says, now we've got a whole set of new influences. Uh, I had a student who, uh, came into to one of my classes at the university and said he was gonna do his paper on uh, the dialect called hip hop. This is about 1971 or 72. I said, what? And of course, he was right. I didn't know what was going on. He was on a cutting edge and I was still in 1939 Bakersfield. That, um, the technical term for that where we accommodate to our, we speak and we are in all kinds of very subtle ways accommodating to the person to whom we are speaking. It, it's called accommodation. And so our, um, our characters accommodate to one another. Our children accommodate to us when they use different, they make choices of diction around us. And so that's another, uh, it's another whole way. We accommodate to our readers. And if our voice is, um, I think it's, I think the kind word is confused by the idea that we are writing up to people that we think are way smarter than we are. I think this is what happens sometimes when we sit down and start writing and excuse the expression literary something or other um, because we're, we're trying to sound learned and we think that these people will think we're stupid or American or something, you know, if we talk the way that we really talk, then um, what we've done is we've accused, we've confused ourselves with this matter of a accommodation. We don't want to write down to people that we think are dumber than we are, and we don't want to be writing up to our betters. What we really want to do in our voice is to find people who get us, right? We're, we're writing, we're trying to write the book or the story that we in some way want to read and um, that happens in a democratic situation, not in the one, if, we're, uh, if the accommodation is working downward, we're lecturing, and um, if it's working upward, it's, we're kissing up, right? Um, I think we have time for just a few questions now, and we've 
just barely pry the lid open on this barrel of this subject, but we'd love to have some questions. Yes, Miss. Could, could you stand so people can hear you? Thank you. Dorothy says no. I don't think all voice is performance. Um, a lot of what I'm talking and I have been talking about is a first-person narration voice. Uh, but the last few years, I've been writing uh, a series of short stories set in Northern California and Western Sonoma County among a people that I don't understand but I'm learning about. And a lot of what I'm doing is a very close third-person narration. Um, and spoken dialect in the course of the stories has a certain performative aspect. It's just how I write. Um, I inhabit that character. I talk out of that character. But at the same time, that third person narrative voice that's telling the story and presenting that character who speaks is, is the little back and doesn't have all that vernacular that the characters use and in fact comments on what's going on in the minds of these characters using some of the same language. It's said in the same place, and my assumption is close third. It's sort of in that person's voice, but not quite. It's more formal, it's back a little, and it has a really wry sense of humor, uh, but not performative, um, actually more formal. Hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yes, miss. Have you um, read it lately? Yeah. The the, um, the novel changed. Oh, she said, "Where does the the voice of the novel come from?" The novel actually. No, no, no. no. Does the no, novel no. have a voice? Well, oh, I yeah, but there's something really important that happened to us, and what happened to us, and that we were all inheritors of, is that Flaubert wrote a book called Madame Bovary, and what happened then was that the, he um, decided, or whatever happens to us, that we we he stumbled upon, he discovered that there there could be this fluid noticer, and so what the narrator is, the voice of the book is always the noticer. So you go back to um, Austin, James. Just, just look at who's noticing. And then you notice in Madame Bovary that the noticer does this thing that Dorothy's talking about, which is that the noticer can be anywhere. And it's not godlike omniscience. What it is is this unbelievable intimacy with the the guy who's driving the um, hack, you know, that whatever they call that thing that, you know, with horses in front, and if I were French and in the provinces, I would know the name of it. But there, so Madame Emma is in the back with what's his name, and they're, whatever the word in French for fucking is. <laughs> and, and the guy driving the, the the thing knows, you know, he, he notices. So th that's, the, that's the trick to, to the narrator. It's the noticer. Actually, he never uses that word. He just takes us through a series of stops, and we, and we supply yeah. all of yeah. the action. Yeah, we know, because we know. He hasn't talked down to us. Uh, any questions? Really? 
voice is over. <laughs> Guess we shut down. Yeah. So, Rhoda, sure. Um, I was just thinking of that, uh, one of my favorite first lines, I think it's from a member of the wedding, I think. Anyway, uh, the, the line is, first line is, there were two deaf mutes in the town and they were always together. And it's so simple and so beautiful and so calm and not about the narrator at all. But I, I do think that in a novel there is a narrative voice that is um, often not obsessed with herself, but who has this calm, grounded quality um, to kind of be a foil for all the drama. And, you know, if you start trying to think of voice as something um, fabulous and brilliant and, you know, as a peak moment, then you have, you know, such a breathless novel that it will be boring. You know, it doesn't have those in-between connecting steps to it. Yes, miss. Please stand up so we can hear you. One of you mentioned um, letting the story find the voice, so the story dictates the voice almost. So I'm wondering, and, and yet, the same author, usually there is a consistency in the voice, right, across novels. So I'm wondering how you negotiate potentially between a particular story, a particular novel, and the author's Al, that's a musical question, really, isn't it? Uh, this is one of those things that, uh, just to cite Dorothy again, it's hard to talk about. You find out while you're doing it, because you are in a trance state in the creative part of your generating, you know, a novel or a story. And uh, characters do speak to you. Voice, you hear voices, and you try to get them down. But... Uh, all of this stuff is, is called art, and we say that, and we forget what art means. Uh, you're actually, uh, as the author, sort of nudging and, and guiding things along, and those people are going to say things that are of use to the story that you're telling. They're not going to uh, completely go off on their own because things have to move in a certain direction. And I love uh, get inhabiting a character and trying to figure out how she or he uh, would respond to different situations. I've written uh, two novels that are done from a female perspective, and I know that the energy for that comes from listening to my aunts and you know the, the women in my family when I was supposed to have been asleep at night, sitting up telling stories and finding out that women really talk to each other. They really tell each other things, and they get into the darknesses and secrets, men bullshit each other. You know, they're always trying to do a one-up type thing. Oh, you think that's something? Look what I did. You know, that kind of thing. And I heard more stuff that I should not have heard uh, as a kid. So that when uh, I decided uh, uh, I'm going to have a female protagonist, I just plug it into that outlet and it just pours out because I, I have a memory of the kinds of things that, and the kinds of ways in which people um, communicate things uh, with each other and to uh, listeners. So I think that with experience you'll find that just just writing little short things in different voices will give you uh, a little taste of what it's like to have uh, someone other than your yourself uh, tell a story or presume to tell a story. Let me address that for just a second. Uh, I have found, and this might, may or may not be relevant to what you're saying, but I found a couple of things. One is that in the early draft, first draft, uh, I try not to be present. Uh, I, I try to let who, who or whatever it is tell the story, tell it on their own terms, and do the best I can to extricate myself. 
And then when I've reached the point where, where the, the artifice of art, where, where there has to be some organization imposed, the, the third draft or the 53rd draft, and I think about it, I try to be true to the voice that told it to me. And I, I think in those terms, as, as a teacher, I've done the same thing that I guess most of the others here have done. I'll take a situation and then have, it, have students write about it from several rather different voices. And oftentimes the discovery is that the voice that seemed least palatable to them is the one that turns out be, to be most effective because, because they've had to work harder at it. They ain't never been to no moon. I think that you were talking about the author. Did you say the word author? Yeah, the author I think is, um, it's a really interesting construct, but the author is actually, only has a couple of jobs. One is to get his or her picture taken. They also get to sign a contract. They get, as my publisher says, to show up on time and not be a pain in the ass. Those are the only two jobs. You get to sign books. But, but the, the author doesn't get to write a book. The writer writes the book, and the writer writes it in the, um, the voice of the narrator. So if you can get to that place where you start to hear, and if the author's writing, usually the author is writing really, quote, well, unquote, which is going it, to, it's deadly. And so, um, it, the, um, and as Jerry was saying, the, the voice of the story is really this messy thing. Annie calls it the shitty first draft. You know, that really, really, it really is bad because it's oral language and it comes out of our, the, it's just the, the, the right brain, which is imagistic, just translating in this really scribbly way, you know, scribble scrabble, the kids call it, and the left brain writes it down. And it's, it's a mess, and please let it be messy, because that's where the life is. Fertilizes everything else. Yeah. So, um, yes, ma'am. Um, yes, don't get arrested as a sexual predator. Um, I, could, I can't think of anything more difficult than to write in the voice of a five-year-old. Uh -huh. yeah. Stop doing <laughs> Portrait of the Artist begins with uh, the voice of a child who's just coming into consciousness. And there, th we have a lot of, Dickens does a really good job with child narrators. It's a, it's a conceit, I mean, in that the child does not have the language that the narrator is giving him or her. And so it's tricky. But, so all of this is tricky. It's artifice. You know, we're, we're essentially writing, we're writing fiction. And so um, that it's, it's going to create a tension between um, what the kid knows and how the kid can say it. And also, I think um, children are so much more intelligent than they often, you know, than they often read on the page. They don't have the language to match it. But I think young children have pretty complex thought processes, and so the trick is to um, make their language not sound too adult, which is another, you know, pitfall. But give them, you know, they're really little adults in a lot of ways. They think about a lot of stuff. 
I don't know if you remember that uh, interminable Pardon My Blooper series. A few people might remember that. These were bloopers from radio and television that were assembled into a recorded series of recorded anthologies. And the one that I remember most vividly comes from Art Linkletter's uh, interviews with kids say the funniest things. And this one little boy says, my daddy is in the army in Korea and I live with my mommy. And when my Uncle Charlie comes on the weekend, they make me sleep in the kitchen. But he really isn't my Uncle Charlie. <laughs> there you go. That's the, listen to how kids talk, and you'll have your, your voice. One more question, if you dare. Yes. Please stand up so people can hear you. I mean, honestly, the time for writing well is really later. Honestly, it really, really is. And so what you're trying to do, I, um, we write well. You know, I write really well. I write really easily. And that has never helped me to write a good book. Honestly, I really mean this. You know, if you're going to write a really beautiful sentence, you could sit and write it in a letter to someone. And that's the place for it in a first draft. We're talking about a first draft. But later, later, oh sure, later, you know, when you have a draft, when you have a story, when you've imposed order, God, you get to write well later, but not now. It's a tantalizing and, and, and very uh, intriguing thing that you said, um, to write a really beautiful sentence. What's to say that uh, a vernacular voice, for example, uh, can't utter a sentence that's beautiful. It might not, it might be agrammatical or it might, but um, there's a book, uh, what's, his, what's his name? Peck, children's writer. It's, uh, Richard, the name, Richard, Richard Peck. Peck. Yeah, he, he has a very useful manual for wannabe writers and he wrote it for young adults who are thinking about being writers and so it's, it's very lucidly uh, constructed. And the title is Author But Out. In other words, the author that wants to jump into this show and, and, and show that I've read Melville, and I've read Henry James, and I've read uh, uh, Virginia Woolf, and all of this, is it becomes a pain in the ass when a story is developing, because people aren't interested in that. They're interested in the story and the people that are the process and the relationships that make the story happen. So uh, beautiful sentences, you will, you will have an abundance of them, but if, that, if that's what you're going for, remember that that's what makes literature off territory for a lot of people. They just can't sit still for a lot of that. Um, this is a beautiful yes. sentence is going to call attention to itself. It's going to shine like it's been really polished. And so what you, if, if the author said it, then you just take it out and say, okay, I'll use it later when it's Well, it's each, each book makes its own definition of beauty. And as the Supreme Court Justice once said, I can't define beauty, but I know it when I see it. To paraphrase it. One last question, Miss, please stand up.
Well, do you know that for a fact? He's I do, and I think someone should hurt him. <laughs> well, well, but that's a problem. If you remember reading Camus' La Peste, the plague, there's a writer in there named Ryu who works on the perfect paragraph for about 15 or 20 years, gets the plague and dies before he writes any further. Um, we have to go. We will reassemble here in a year after you've done another 50,000 or 100,000 words. One request. Would you write to our administrators and our board, on which I serve, and remind us that we need a cordless microphone to circulate through the audience for events like this? Thanks. Well, thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.